If you looked at uh, this week's study this week in uh, Growth Group, you will have given most of your attention uh, to chapters 19 and 20, I think, of Exodus uh, and looking at the uh, Ten Commandments there. Uh, this morning we're going to focus really more on the Passover, uh, which comes before uh, the law is given, although we will uh, give some thought to the law uh, as well this morning. Uh, and you'll notice uh, that uh, the Lord's uh, Supper has been prepared. Uh, this is not a magic trick that's happening out the front here. It looks a little bit like that, doesn't it, with the, kind of the, the white sheet over the top. Uh, nothing magic underneath, but something very uh, special for us, uh, and that is the gift of Jesus, uh, this symbolic meal uh, to uh, remember him by and to remember our great salvation by. Uh, and, of course, uh, there's a, a very close connection between the Passover meal that was eaten in the Old Testament uh, by uh, God's people Israel to remember his salvation from slavery in Egypt and uh, why we share this meal uh, for the same reason, to remember that it is God who saves, uh, but a, a greater reason as well, to remember that it is God who saves through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to uh, do together after uh, we look into his word, uh, but let's do that now. Let's, let's pray first. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak and you still speak, that you don't uh, speak new words to us. Uh, you speak the same words that you've been speaking to your people for 2,000 years, the words that testify to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his salvation uh, through the cross and the resurrection. Father, we thank you that uh, we can gather together and uh, hear familiar things, but we pray that your spirit would be in us and among us today, helping us to uh, take those familiar things to heart in life-shaping and life-changing ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, we saw uh, that God promised to Abraham, one man, uh, to make out of him many nations. Now, that's a huge promise, isn't it? We saw the unlikely nature of that promise as well, or at least it's keeping, because uh, Abraham, uh, his wife Sarai was unable to have children. And yet, because God is faithful, eventually, after many years of waiting, uh, Sarai did have a child. Uh, Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarai in their old age. And... Uh, and God proved himself faithful. But still a long way from a great nation, one child. But over the years, things did grow. Uh, one child became two. Isaac had uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob uh, had 12 sons. I'm not going to name them all for you, but they became uh, the tribes of Israel. And over the next 400 years, those 12 sons had many children and grandchildren to the extent that uh, 400 years later, there were millions. We don't know exactly how many, at least 2 million, more than likely, probably more. God's promises, you see, to turn Abraham, one man, into a great nation and then many nations, are making progress. And yet it's not quite as simple as the numbers would suggest. Uh, there have been many challenges. There were many challenges along the way in those intervening years. Not sure how well you know the stories of the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and their offspring, but all sorts of challenges uh, were in the way. There were fraternal fights. There was faulty fertility. 
There were fathers with favorites. There was false imprisonment, there was famine, there were forgetful friends and fearsome foes, and there were even some challenges that didn't start with F. It seemed that God's promises were constantly on the brink of failure because of these challenges. But through it all, God was faithful. And so in spite of all the obstacles, the people were fruitful. They multiplied and began to fill the earth. Now, is that starting to ring bells from even earlier back in the story? But not everybody was happy with their progress. Not everybody was happy with their fecundity. That's also an F word, and if you don't know what it means, talk to me afterwards. It means having lots of children, being very fruitful. And I'll drop the F words there. Let's move on to M words, actually, the mediator. See, just as God had told Abraham 430 years earlier, Israel's status as welcome guests in Egypt, which is how they arrived because of Joseph, well, that had well and truly expired, that status. And so though there they were in Egypt, a great nation, millions of people, they found themselves with no homeland of their own to return to and living under the harsh rule of a foreign king now. And if you think of those three promises that were made to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll give you your own land, and you will live under my rule and blessing, one out of three, not so good. Now, so far in the story, we've seen some big themes brought out. We've seen that theme of blessing that uh, comes out through creation, of how God made everything good for the people that he made. Very good, in fact. But that theme of blessing is then sort of overwhelmed by a theme of curse as Adam and Eve turn against God, turn away from his good rule, and God's curse comes upon them and upon the land and upon all of creation. But that's not God's final word, and and it won't be God's final word. Instead comes the theme of promise that we saw last week. So blessing, curse, promise. And now we learn that that promise... That promise to reverse the curse and return blessing to the world has to come by means of a rescue. So this is a big new theme. This hasn't really appeared in the story just yet, and, this, and yet this is a huge theme that will only grow as the story of the Bible continues, this theme of rescue. A rescue that will be achieved by God himself. God is going to be the rescuer of his people But he's going to do it through a mediator, through somebody who goes before him, goes in his name, goes to do his work and his bidding. That's how he's going to achieve the rescue for his people. Someone who would speak God's word and make God known to his people and ultimately lead them out of slavery and into their freedom. Now, the man that God chooses at this point in the story is a fellow by the name of Moses. We meet Moses in the early chapters of Exodus. Although to call Moses a man is probably a little misleading because when we first meet Moses, he's not a man. He's merely a baby. You may know the story of the baby Moses, the baby who was actually born under a great threat because the Pharaoh at the time had all sorts of plans to deal with these many Israelites. Uh, One of them was to 
put them into forced labour, but the other was actually to get rid of all the male babies. Essentially, this was an attempt at genocide. First of all, the, uh, the Hebrew midwives were supposed to uh, alert the authorities to the birth of any baby. Uh, and then when that didn't work, uh, all the babies were instructed to be thrown into the Nile River, all the male babies of the Israelites. Now, Moses' mum was a clever lady. Uh, in fact, she was even an obedient lady because she did throw her son into the Nile River, albeit in a special little basket lined with pitch so that the water wouldn't get in, and at a special time, in a special place, just so that the way that it would work out for her son would be that the little basket would float by a princess of Egypt at just the right time and be found. And then her daughter Miriam would pop out and say, ooh, fancy this, would you like me to go and get someone who'll take care of the baby for you? <laughs> and, and Moses' mum gets paid for looking after her child. Isn't that wonderful? I love that story. The way that God rescues this baby uh, right at the heart of Egypt, right, right under the nose of the great threat. And her plan works. Now we don't know much about Moses' childhood, but uh, he grows up in that privileged position and then eventually he comes back to Egypt and uh, does amazing miracles and wonders of signs to reveal that he is from God. Now, I've left a little bit of the story out there, but, you know, I was talking about Moses, and yet I could have been talking about somebody else. I could have been talking about another baby that was born under a great threat because he was perceived to be a threat by the ruler at the time, uh, and who found his rescue actually in the land of Egypt. Uh, and whose childhood we don't know much about, and yet who appeared on the scene with great miracles, testifying that he was, in fact, from God. Ringing any bells for anybody? Could be Moses. Could be Jesus. And the connection is real, and the connection is intentional, because this is a theme that God introduces here in the life of Moses, but that has its fulfilment much later on in the story. Now, I'm not going to say any more about that connection just yet because we'll get there in time, but it's worth seeing it early on, isn't it? We start to get a sense of how important the mediator, the one who acts on behalf of God and on behalf of the people, is. Now, uh, I mentioned those miracles uh, that were done. Of course, they were uh, in... Uh, for the purpose of enabling God's people to be set free from their slavery. I'm talking about the ten plagues that uh, Moses, or that God performed uh, through Moses, with Moses as his mouthpiece. Uh, I, can't remember, I can never remember them all in order, those ten plagues, but the last two, it's easy to remember, the plague of darkness, and then finally the tenth plague, uh, the terrible plague, the plague on the firstborn that we read about in our Bible reading this morning the 10th plague. So after many opportunities for uh, Pharaoh to uh, acquiesce and to let the people go, uh, and many refusals to let the people go, it came down to this final plague. 
And it's introduced in chapter 11 of Exodus, if you've got a Bible uh, open in front of you. Uh, We'll see there in verse 1, God's plan. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Why? Why is this plague going to work where all the other plagues failed? Well, it's when we discover exactly what is going to happen. Down in verse 4, Moses delivers this message to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says about midnight, I will go through Egypt. The Lord himself says, I will go through Egypt. And every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. And then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But that distinction that God makes isn't based on whether Israel deserves his judgment or not. It is simply about who he chooses to save from the judgment that they deserve. And that's really important to understand. See, in previous plagues, Israel had escaped unscathed. You know, a plague of boils would come and the Egyptians would suffer, but the Israelites wouldn't. Uh, And the same in many of the other plagues. But in this case, the final one, in order to escape this final judgment, it's essential that Israel listens and obeys and takes part in this ceremonial meal, this meal of bread and lamb and herbs. But the key moment of the meal is actually before the meal. As they're preparing for the meal, as the sun is setting at twilight, And we read about that in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. They have that lamb or that goat and take care of it until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now that might sound like a very strange thing to do before a meal. I don't expect that it's something that you tend to do before you eat any meal. And it's a bit gruesome, really, isn't it, to paint blood onto your house? I mean, why couldn't they have just written a number three or something above the door? Well, there's a good reason. And the reason is that a sacrifice is required that if Israel is to actually not suffer the same consequence as Egypt, a sacrifice is required. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them uh, from the sheep or the goats. And then in verse 9, the way that it's cooked is significant. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, the legs, and the internal organs. That's Those are instructions for a sacrifice. That's how the animals at the uh, the temple and the the tabernacle later were uh, prepared for sacrifice, were cooked at the sacrifice. And so this lamb then, or or the goat, was sacrificed in order that the people might be saved. Its blood was shed so that the firstborn sons of Israel would not 
die, would not suffer the same judgment as the firstborn of Egypt. So again, God protects his firstborn. God protects the firstborn of Israel. God protects the children of the promise because he's not going to let that promise fail. And I think it's really important for us to understand that judgment and salvation come together. That you can't actually have one without the other. I mean, we love the good news of salvation, don't we? But that coin has two sides. We are saved from something, and not all are saved. There is salvation and there is judgment. It's what happens as God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt, that those he chooses are saved and those who are not chosen are judged. And it's actually what happens on the cross of Jesus as well. Salvation and judgment. Don't miss it. It's our salvation because judgment falls on the Son of God. That unnatural darkness that preceded this last plague, well, it precedes the death of God's firstborn son on the cross as well, bringing these two events together, salvation and judgment. And we should remember this and be humble, be humble that we have been rescued from the judgment that we deserve. We haven't been chosen out because we're deserving. There's a very big difference there. And as we're humble, we will be grateful Grateful to God for our salvation. Grateful that we haven't fallen under his judgment. And we will be compassionate. Not judging others because really we are no better. And we will be bold with the gospel, won't we? Because we won't want anyone else to suffer the judgment they deserve. We will want them to experience the salvation and the grace that we know. Because God is merciful. So don't ever think that in saving, God chooses not to judge. Salvation and judgment always happen together, and we need to be mindful of that. So God rescues his people. Uh, the, the, uh, the excitement, the challenges aren't over for them. We know that after this, they were chased uh, by Pharaoh and his army all the way to the Red Sea and looked doomed. But God again rescued them uh, through uh, opening up the Red Sea and fighting for them. And after they cross through the Red Sea, they are brought to Mount Sinai. The same mountain, in fact, where Moses uh, was first enlisted by God, where the, burning, where the bush burned and God spoke to him from that spot. And he told him, when you are done with this job, I will bring you back here. And he does. God brings the whole nation out to the mountain, the mountain of Sinai. And so after the meal comes the mountain. After the lamb comes the law. After the rescue comes the recipe for life in the land. And that order is really important. First God saves and then he gives his people the law. He doesn't give his people the law and say, obey this, and I will save you. He saves them and brings them out so that they can live in a good land under his rule and blessing. We need to remember that God saves us from something, 
God saves us from his judgment. God saves us from slavery to sin. But he also saves us for something. He doesn't just save us so that we can then do our own thing. That would actually be slavery again. He saves us for obedience, for living under his good rule. And so he takes them uh, out to the mountain and he gives them his good law. I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And identifying himself as their saviour, he then gives them the law. First of all, he gives them the Ten Commandments and then he gives them a whole bunch of ceremonial law that flows out of those things. And they're good laws. We saw this last year if you were around in Deuteronomy. Remember that? We saw that God's law is a good law. It is not hard or oppressive. It is not for God's benefit. It is for the benefit of the people that they might live under his good rule and the blessing that flows. And yet, at the same time, the fact that the law has to be given is a sign that we're a long way from Eden, aren't we? See, in Eden, we only needed one rule. There was only one rule. But breaking that rule meant that everything had to be explained and the law had to be expanded. And yet, if you look closely at this law, if you look closely at the Ten Commandments, you'll see that in one sense there really is still only one law it's the law that was broken in the garden it's actually the law that we break every day and it's right there at the start you shall have no other gods before me put nothing else before me put me first always how are you going on that one anyone striking at 100% I doubt it. We laugh, but it's sad. We can't even keep that one law, that one good rule to let God be God and not try to take his place. See, if we were to keep that one law, we would keep all the rest, wouldn't we? And yet if we break and You can't break any of the other laws without also breaking the first. And so the problem that Israel faced, the problem that we face in our hearts, and laws, no matter how good, are powerless to change hearts, is still there. The problem is still there. And so God's solution is still necessary. Our salvation is still necessary. We, we, may not need to, we may not be entrapped in slavery under some other nation, but in our hearts, we're still people who wander towards idolatry, people who don't put God first. And so God has met our need. God has met our need through our lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the one whose blood we find refuge under. You can see the similarities between Israel's situation and ours, can't you? You can see the similarity between their need and ours. You can see the way that God is so consistent in the way that he treats his people, the way that he meets their need, the way that he looks after them, the way that he is faithful to his promises. 
in calling together a people to be his very own. See, just like Israel needed a mediator and God gave them Moses, we need the greater mediator, Jesus Christ, who will stand uh, there in our place and pay the penalty that is due to us. Thank God for Jesus. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to share the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, uh, all your word is one. And we've seen that clearly this morning for the way that the themes are woven all the way through. And we know that this isn't just true in, in the case of a written down book, but what is written down is history. That you have been at work through all generations, uh, weaving these themes of rescue and salvation, of mediation, of sacrifice, of sin and rescue, of need and promise, all the way through. Father, thank you that you are so consistent. And we come humbly to you this morning, recognizing that we don't belong to you out of any great merit of our own, far from it. What we have deserved is the same judgment that fell on Egypt. And yet, our judgment, if our trust is in Christ, has fallen on him. This is your grace to us, Father, and for it, we are grateful. Father, we ask that your good news would uh, be fruitful in our lives, that we won't only rejoice that we have been rescued from your judgment, that, but that we would also rejoice that we have been rescued for living uh, as your people together under your good rule and blessing. We pray that we might seek your rule and blessing out in our lives and be people far less prone to wander because we understand that life is only truly found when we are with you. As we've sung already, just a closer walk with you. Father, thank you for making that possible through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.